Our scripture reading today comes from John 20, verses 19 to 29. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God, then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Lord, I remember on Pentecost when your spirit alighted on each person in that upper room with a, a tongue of fire. May your Holy Spirit descend upon us now and may you show us the way to peace. Amen. We've all been here, exhausted from the daily grind, overwhelmed by expectations from work and family, social commitments, needing the peace and quiet of a nice, structured jail cell. Well, in South Korea, there is a mock prison where inmates pay $90 to spend 24 hours in solitary confinement, away from all phones, clocks, and people. I was too busy, said Park Hyrie, as she sat in a 54-square-foot cell. I shouldn't be here right now, given the work I need to do, but I decided to pause and look back at myself for a better life. Clients get a blue prison uniform, a yoga mat, tea set, a pen, and a notebook. They sleep on the floor. There is a small toilet inside the room, but no mirror. Co-founder No Jihayang says that the mock prison was inspired by her husband, a prosecutor who often put in 100-hour work weeks. He said he would rather go into a solitary confinement for a week to take a rest and feel better, she said. 
That was the beginning. Noah said that some customers are wary of spending 24 or 48 hours in a prison cell until they try it. After a stay in the prison, people say, this isn't a prison. The real prison is where we return to. Well, the disciples are in a locked room, not locked from the outside, but locked from the inside, and they're afraid. And I think we all can understand how fear can be a prison, right? We, all, we can all relate to that. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. So again, what does that mean? What did he mean? I mean, did he mean anything by it? Was it just an informal greeting? Hey, peace. Or, and you know, I, actually, I can't think of anything that Jesus ever said that he didn't mean, right? I mean, this is the word made flesh come among us. I think he must have meant something, especially since it's repeated three times in this passage. Jesus, John, wants us to get the message that there is something available to us that Christ wants for us, and it has something to do with the word peace. The second time he says the words, they must have experienced a kind of whiplash. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. <laughs> so why are they locked? <laughs> they lock themselves in that room. The last place they want to be is out there. They've seen what happened to Jesus when the Father sent him into this world. That's what they're afraid of. And so he says, peace be with you. Now get out there as I, I have been sent, so now I'm sending you. It reminds me of something I read this week. Um, this person said, you know, Jesus promises us two things in life. Flourishing and suffering. In this very gospel, he says, I've come that you might have life and that abundantly. And he says, uh, if you want to follow me, you'll have to take up your cross and follow me. Or more succinctly in the same gospel, he says, in this world you will have trouble. And that's because we live in between the two comings of Jesus. Some people call this the already not yet kingdom of God. It's begun to come. And some things are certainly much better than they were, for example, in the first century. The percentage of people who are hungry, people who um, die of diseases that now we, you know, we, we have cures for. At the same time, there's still so much suffering in the world. And so it probably characterizes your life as, as well. I know I just read a little thing from Anne Lamott, uh, a well-known author. And... Uh, it's a little sort of thing she wrote on her birthday. She's 67 as of yesterday. And she said, you know, I, I'm forgetting things. She's 67 now. And my feet hurt. Ten minutes after I take my medication, it doesn't even feel like I've taken the medication. She actually has a special car that she rides now, drives now because of her feet. And she says, you know, if I'm really honest, this is the happiest time in my life, but not always. You know, some days just suck. And so, yes, flourishing, but also suffering. And Jesus says into all of that, peace be with you. So what did he mean? 
I think he was talking about his own peace because he says so in another place in this gospel where he talks about peace. It's in chapter 14, verse 33. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. and Do not let them be afraid. So he says, my peace I give you. And that can mean a couple of things. He, Jesus may be saying, you know, the kind of peace that I have, that's what I want you to have. And as your teacher, and you're my disciples, I want to teach you how to have, how to live and experience my peace. And I think there's truth to that. He's our teacher. He certainly wants to teach us how to experience his peace. But I think he's something, saying something more profound. I think he's saying, I want my peace. Not just peace like my peace, but I want my very peace to be in you. He says something similar in the next chapter. He says, I say these things to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy become complete. So his peace, his joy. The Apostle Paul says something similar about grace. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. I know some translations say faith in the Son of God. And it, technically that's possible, but it's more natural reading is because he is in me now, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Now between those two passages about peace and joy, we have that, that picture of, of the vine and the branches and Jesus saying, um, you know, be connected to me. And he says, abide in me as I abide in you. So if we want Jesus' peace, then we need to abide in him. Now, I think communion is, is meant to communicate this to us. When I stand behind that communion table, I don't just sort of reenact um, the, the event that happened 2,000 years ago. And you just are out there as, as spectators. You come forward and you actually take in that bread, take in that juice, which is a symbol of our actually taking in or affirming the fact that Christ is in me and in you. And it's, um, you know, we, we may experience any variety of things. Each of us is different. You know, I, some of us may experience a profound peace or joy. It may be that our faith is really strengthened in that moment. But these things fade, don't they? It isn't very long before we forgot that we even took in the elements. But where are the elements? They're still in us. They're still a part of us. They remain. And of course, the elements at some point will no longer remain in our bodies. But Jesus does. And he says, I'm still here. Remain in me. Stay. It's not like these elements are magic. You know, now, because you've eaten this bread and, and, and drank of this cup, now you have this amazing uh, peace and joy and love, and, and it's yours forever. No, we have to remain, remain in him as he remains in us. Now, I want you to think about this. Really let this in. I'm not talking about relating to a doctrine, the doctrine that Christ is in us. I'm talking about the real person. 
The person that actually lived 2,000 years ago took on human flesh, did the miracles he did, including raising the dead, taught the things that he taught, hung on that cross for you and for me, rose again on the third day. I'm talking about that Jesus being in me and in you. Not the doctrine, the person. Now, how do I know? Last week we talked about uh, the resurrection of Jesus. And there's some evidence for that, good evidence for that. I mentioned the evidence that the uh, that, that cold case detective came, arrived at. He was an atheist, but there were four, for him, incontrovertible facts that were agreed upon by friends and foes of Jesus. That he died on the cross, that a couple days later there was an empty tomb, no one has recovered the body, that his disciples think, believed that they saw the risen Jesus. And finally, that experience, whatever it was, changed their lives, transformed their character and their courage. So he said, it's reasonable. You don't, have to, you don't have to check in your brain at the door, and I certainly don't want you to check in your brain at the door when you come in here. Um, but what about Christ being in us? Is there evidence for that? I don't think for a moment that what happened to the disciples, the change that happened in their character and person and, 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 and uh, courage, I don't think for a moment that what happened to them happened simply because of the resurrection of Jesus. They had lived with Jesus for three years. They'd, they'd seen him perform these remarkable miracles. I mean... And, and what happened at the end of that three years, they were arguing about who was the greatest, um, and they betrayed and denied and abandoned him. They'd already seen Jesus raise people from the dead, and now, yes, he was alive. They were overjoyed, just as often they had been impressed, but I don't think for a moment that that was enough for them to become the people that they became. That wasn't the Christ that came to them. That was the Christ that was in them. In this particular story, he breathes on them, his own spirit, the Holy Spirit. It's a picture of the fact that the Holy Spirit is Christ himself in us. And of course, that happened historically on Pentecost. That's coming up in 50 days when the Holy Spirit descended upon them and those disciples who were still locked in a room, an upstairs room, burst out of that room, stood in front of the crowds of thousands of people in Jerusalem, that same crowd that had killed Jesus, and boldly proclaimed not only that Jesus was alive, but you killed your Messiah. Talk about chutzpah. And the people said, what are we going to do? And Peter said, oh, there's good news. You can repent. You can turn from your sins. You can be forgiven and be filled with this same Spirit. And last week we talked about that community that was formed when the Holy Spirit came upon them. Christ within them and among them. That's the evidence. And hopefully we've witnessed at that evidence in each other's lives and at times in our own life. Would we be different if Jesus wasn't in our lives? I really liked uh, Casey's uh, 
children's message today, didn't you? Did you believe that those paper clips actually were joined? Anybody not believe it? So why didn't you believe it? I mean, I mean, we know Casey, right? She's not a trickster. We know she's not going to lie to us. We saw the kind of, you know, surprise in her own, and it actually worked. <laughs> you know, she says, I'm telling you the truth. I don't think she would say, I'm telling you the truth, if she was lying, right? I don't believe for a moment, not for a split second, that these guys were lying. I spent too much time reading these words. I don't believe for a moment that they were lying, partly because they were so honest. <laughs> I mean, these gospel writers are so honest about the disciples and their failings. They're not tr trying to cover up anything. And there were difficulties even later in the churches and sometimes between the apostles. I believe it. I believe that Christ appeared to them, and I believe that Christ was in them, and that that explains what we read in the New Testament. And so then, if I really believe it, I can say, Lord, help me learn. Help me learn what it means to live in you. Help me learn how to have that sort of courage and life and faith and love and peace. But there is that rather ambiguous crime to disturb the peace. I looked it up, and I guess that covers a whole wide variety of possible uh, misdemeanors and crimes. And there are any number of things that disturb this peace. Yes, even the peace that we have in Christ. And that's because we live in between the times. And so uh, um, there's a few that surface for me as I reflected on this passage just very quickly. Maybe you can relate to some of these uh, intruders and disturbers of the peace. Things like guilt, shame, anger, fear, doubt. I can't imagine how much, not just grief, but guilt those disciples must have been feeling. They told Jesus they would never abandon him. Peter said, Lord, I would never deny you. I don't care what you say, what, I would never deny you. And he did, and they did. And Jesus comes into that room, and suddenly he's there, and what does he say to them? Peace be with you. I mean, those words must have, <laughs> they couldn't, if I couldn't imagine, we can't hardly imagine just what, what sort of uh, healing and comfort those words brought to them at that moment. What about the shame? There are some things that we do that we just feel guilty about. And there's some things that we do that, that bring us to a different level. A level of shame. I think they were there. That's when you're, you're, everything you believe or thought you knew about yourself is in question. You wonder even if you deserve to be alive. And I would imagine those disciples felt that way. And sometimes that shame is because of things that have been done to us. If we've been abused, how we now think about ourselves, that shame gets triggered. So shame is a huge disturber of the peace. So Jesus shows him his hands 
aside. See, a Roman crucifixion was painful. It was the most painful way to, to be executed. But the thing it was most known for was its shame. You were naked on that cross. Think back to the Garden of Eden after the fall. Adam and Eve suddenly realized they were naked. It's a symbol of the fact they felt shame, tried to cover themselves up because of what they had done. And yeah, here you are naked on that cross. And the message of the cross to that person and to everyone that was looking on was, you are scum. That's the message of the cross. You are scum. It's interesting how Paul later says about himself and his colleagues, we are regarded as the scum of the earth. And you would think that Jesus would just want to leave all that behind. Have no, you know, no, no, nothing to remind him of that shame. But here he is with those same scars, that same side. He says, I, I know shame. I know your shame. Give your shame to me. I didn't just die for your guilt. I died for your shame. We're together now. And then there's anger. You would expect Jesus to enter into that room and say, how could you? How could you? After all, I invested in you. I even, I even gave you fair warning about what you were going to do that night. How could you betray, deny, and abandon me? But instead, peace be with you or on that cross saying father forgive them they don't know what they're doing i would imagine those you know often when we're feeling guilt we try to uh to kind of uh, relieve the guilt a, a bit by blaming other people find someone else to blame and you know, they, could, they could have been saying, you know, Judas, can you believe what he did? And of course, he's dead now because he committed suicide. If he hadn't betrayed Jesus, we, everything would still be good. And of course, there were simmering animosities between them that surfaced during that final meal. Yeah, anger can be a disturber of the peace, especially when it lingers. Peace be with you. Fear, anxiety, um, obviously, that's a disturber of the peace. That's a tough one. And Jesus is sending his disciples out into the world as he was sent into the world. And, you know, part of what he's saying just through his body language is the worst that could happen to you is that you could die. And look what's after that. If you're in me and I am in you, the worst that could happen is that you could die. <laughs> Remember what I said? That I came that you might have life and that abundant and that it would last forever? Um, that's the worst that can happen. Do not be afraid. And don't be afraid that I'm going to stop loving you. Don't be afraid that I'm going to leave you. Obviously, I haven't yet, even when you are at your worst. And then there's doubt. You know, I, I know doubt is something that 
comes naturally to me, <laughs> let me put it that way. And here's Thomas, you know. There's, there's something a little strange about this story. I know we've sometimes uh, referred to Thomas as the patron saint of doubt. <laughs> and I think, you know, there's some truth to that. But, you know, it's not just that he's being, he, that he's being intel, trying to be intellectually honest. I mean, it'd be one thing for a, a, a group of people to show up and say, oh, we saw Jesus, and for Thomas to say, yeah, right. <laughs> I saw him die. No, it was his own brothers and sisters that said, we've seen the Lord. Remember, he actually talked about this. We have his word, and now we have this testimony. He had the testimony of his own family. Like I said earlier, we believe Casey because we know Casey. So why didn't Thomas believe his friends, his, his colleagues, his, his family? I think there's more going on. Probably has to do with that guilt, that shame, that anger, that fear. Often when people you say, I'm an atheist or whatever, it, there's, there's some intellectual aspect to that, but almost always you'll find that there's an anger, a disappointment. In Christ, his church, in God, there's something more going on than simply intellectual doubt. And Jesus graciously says, here you go. You said something about wanting to touch my hands and my feet. Go, go ahead, Thomas. You see, we have witnesses. We have witnesses. Just as, just as um, uh, Thomas had witnesses, it's people he knew and trusted. We have witnesses, and I trust these witnesses. So what do we do when these intruders surface in our lives? Intruders like guilt and shame and anger and fear and doubt. Well, in this instance, Jesus and the Apostle Paul and neuroscience agree, at least as to what the problem is, what to do. So this is uh, Romans uh, 6, beginning with verse 8. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So we start with faith. We start with the physical resurrection of Jesus. Do we believe that happened? And, you know, I mean, some days it doesn't feel like it. Um, we wonder if God is in control, if Jesus is, is in fact the Lord of heaven and earth. But that, there's that faith that says, yes, I believe that. And we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Okay, yep, that's right. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Now, now no, notice it says the death he died, he died to sin once for all. I thought Jesus wasn't a sinner. There's that, there's that passage in the New Testament where it says that Jesus took on um, the likeness of sinful flesh. He, he, through Mary, took on human flesh, flesh that's influenced by the sin disease, um, a flesh that can be afraid, that can be angry, um, and that can hold on to anger. It's, it's flesh that can feel guilty and shame. It's capable of doing all those things. And in fact, the writer of the Hebrews says, he was tempted in every way we are, but didn't sin. The reason he could be tempted is because he had 
those impulses in his own body. He doesn't have to worry about that. He's not tempted anymore. But if Jesus had those things in his body, we shouldn't be surprised if we still have those impulses in our bodies, right? Even though we've been saved, even though we're born again, and even though Jesus is still living in us. So when Jesus came into this world, everyone was expecting that when the Messiah came, there would be peace. All the evil and conflict and injustice in the world would be, would be discarded. And of course, that didn't, isn't what happened. Jesus was in the world, but the world didn't suddenly change. He says, it's going to happen slowly, like seeds. The same thing is true of our inner lives. If Jesus is in us, first of all, the fact that he was in this world as this perfect human being and was willing to be in this broken, sinful world tells us about Jesus' mercy and his grace. He can handle it. He's had to handle our sin from the beginning of time. And we may have difficulty believing that he could actually be in us when we're aware of these impulses and sometimes are giving in to them. But he's there, just as he was in the outer world in the first century. He's still a part of us. That stuff doesn't get rid of him. So what do we do? And, and by the way, what neuroscience teaches us is that things like guilt and shame and anger and anxiety and doubt. We can experience them in in an acute way, in a momentary way, but if we continue to experience them, they become a part of our bodies. We become wired with those things, okay? In other words, not just within our control. Oh, I'm going to stop feeling anxious now. Or I'm going to stop being angry now. That's just not how it works. And so Jesus himself, you see, lives to God, as we're talking about living to Christ or in Christ and him in us. In the same way, count yourselves, reckon yourselves, dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is faith again. That we really did die with Christ and we're in him and he's in us. The word reckon is an accounting term. The numbers don't lie. Man, I, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just so poor. And, you know, and there's some people who live poor. So poor, you think they've got to be just impoverished. You'll find out later they have millions of dollars. The numbers don't lie. And then there are people who lie about their wealth. But the numbers don't lie. The reality is we are awash in grace. We are awash in God's love. We are his beloved. But we have to trust that. It's objectively true, but we have to have our faith in that. Therefore, do not let sin reign. Remember we talked about training to reign? And a big part of where we reign is over ourselves. doesn't mean we can just tell these things to go. But therefore, do not let sin reign in your body so that you obey its evil desires. Those feelings and the accompanying thoughts are going to tell you things. We have to decide if we're going to obey them if we're going to believe them, first of all. And secondly, if they tell us to do stuff, if we're going to do that stuff, if we're going to actually obey those impulses. And so when we disobey, that's how, you have to start with disobedience. Disobeying those impulses. Saying, yeah, I feel you, but I'm not going to believe you. 
I feel you, but um, I'm not going to act on this. The more we do that, these things begin over the course of a long period of time to lose their grip on our bodies. They're still there. They'll always be there, but they will lose much of their power. But we have to be willing to disobey. It's kind of like recovery, people who struggle with addictions. Um, the more time and the more recovery time you get in, the impulse is still there, but it begins to lose its power. So do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who've been brought back from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. It doesn't work just to say no. We have to be able to say yes to something else. For sin shall no longer be your master, it's only a master if you allow it to be, if you obey it, because you are not under the law, but under grace. And grace is forgiveness. We also have the grace of the Spirit in our lives wanting to help us. And so Jesus, after a long discussion, it's one of his longest talks in the Sermon on the Mount on worry and anxiety, says, seek the kingdom. Throw yourself into seeking flourishing for the people around you. Your children, your spouse, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers. Don't just, you know, don't just play good defense. I know they say you know, good defense is the key to a championship, and it is. But you still have to have some offense. And the offense is love. And so rather than simply resisting those impulses that are destructive to you and to the people around you, throw yourself in the opposite direction. Offer yourself to God in love. That's what Jesus did. He was struggling in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is there another way for us to do this, Father? But then he said, not, my, not what I want, but what you want. He disobeyed the impulse to back out. He obeyed the call to do the thing that would save humanity. He threw himself into the flourishing of the world. And so Jesus is actually telling us a part of how we get peace and stay in peace. Yeah, it was really great when he said, peace be with you, but he says, now go. It's time. We've done this for three years, guys. It's time to go and practice this. And Jesus specifically mentions forgiveness. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. You know, I think of forgiveness sort of like a vaccine. Um, what happened under the last administration in terms of coming up with vaccines, this coming together of government and, and private and uh, uh, research and, and money, it was amazing that, now this is unprecedented that these vaccines were come up with so quickly. Where most people agree what was lacking is a plan for distributing the vaccine. Jesus had that covered. For three years, he had been preparing his disciples to administer the vaccine now that it was available. And that vaccine is the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That cross, hard-won forgiveness of Jesus. We all need it. We all need to receive this forgiveness, and we all need to give this forgiveness. 
There are people we need to forgive for our hearts to be at peace. And there are things we need to be forgiven for for our hearts to be at peace. And it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it has to be administered properly. You have to follow the instructions. That's what Peter says in chapter 3 of Acts. Repent, therefore. Turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, so that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Jesus came full of grace and truth. You've got to admit that, yeah, I've done this. And then confess it. And trust that he's forgiven it. And don't go back. So yeah, there's some instructions, but this is an amazing salvation, an amazing forgiveness that we have to experience and to share with people. And so the peace of Christ is Christ's own peace. And yeah, he wants to teach us how to use that peace in our lives and to help us learn how to abide in Christ. He says, the Spirit is here to help you learn how to abide in me. And yes, this all involves saying no. Saying no to those impulses that are not of Christ. And saying yes to the call of God in our lives. And there's an enemy who's going to try to push against all of this. You know, um, some people, when they take the vaccine, they have a reaction. Now, most of us had a sore arm. But some people, I know Dave was down for the count for at least a couple of days. And, and don't be surprised if you seek to abide in Christ and to trust his peace and presence in your life if you don't get a reaction. What happened in the first century? Did Jesus get a reaction? Absolutely. From the get-go, he had a reaction. And your body you know, has found all these coping mechanisms. And don't be surprised then as you seek to follow Christ and to focus on him and his peace. Don't think that it's just going to happen right away. Don't, don't be surprised if there's a reaction now or maybe, you know, I remember when I, um, when I gave my life to Christ, I experienced the most profound peace and joy for three days. And then doubt began to come into my awareness. Hmm? That disturber of the peace. So don't be surprised. Don't be surprised if there's a reaction. Hang in there. Be faithful. Say no as well as say yes. And ask for the Spirit's help. He's there. He's going to help you. And so, my brothers and sisters, peace be with you. Not my peace. His peace. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, Christ in us. Amazing. Thank you for this peace that you've won for us and offer us now. We pray for this peace for Connor, Linda and Jeff's grandson. We pray for his surgery tomorrow to remove that drain. And we pray for the root problem and, and that it would be attended to and healed. Thank you that Ray is making some good progress. Please bless Ray and Diane this week. Lord, you know all that Wayne and Patty need from you right now. Help them, Lord, and bless them. We pray for Alan as he continues to have treatments. 
Thank you for showing him your grace through all these years. Please bless him and Pam this week. We pray the same for Gerlinda. Lord, dissolve those blood clots in her lungs and relieve the pain of her arthritis. And Lord, we thank you for the ministry of church world service, especially in their work of, of disaster relief. We're blessed to be able to support them financially this month and to prepare those kits of the heart. And Lord, give us all what we still need to endure and hopefully grow from another week in this pandemic. We pray for the entire world and for all that must still be done for everyone to be safe. We know that you want your kingdom to come throughout the world. And so we pray for that kingdom to come. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.